All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, great to see you here at the Medina campus of Grace. If you're a guest uh, with us this morning, I feel like I need to apologize to you uh, for what just happened. And uh, that was Dan Miller. He leads our student ministries here, or I should say uh, he used to uh, lead the student ministries <laughs> here. There's a job opening now at Grace. And so if you're looking to get into that, uh, it'd be great. You can visit Dan in prison too. That'd be fun. But, uh, but no, for real, I do just want to uh, just kind of reiterate what they were talking about. The party is going to be a blast. It's coming up this Friday. You do not want to miss it. And again, kind of the heartbeat behind that, in case you missed some of it, is we just kind of said, you know, uh, in the duration of our life as a church, so this, this campus, the Medina East campus, is seven years old now. And we said we have literally never in our entire history been able to have all of us in one place at one time under one roof. And so we said, how cool would it be uh, to get to kind of get everyone together and to be able to really celebrate just what God is building and what God is doing and have a chance to just enjoy something for the whole family. And so it's going to be a blast. I want to encourage you to come. My wife and I are super pumped about seeing you there at the party coming this Friday. Uh, but today, uh, what we're doing here at our campus is we're actually finishing a series that we've been in for 10 weeks, believe it or not. So it has been a, a bit of a long series, uh, but I think it's been a very important series. And it's been neat to see how God has really worked worked in the lives of so many people, so many of you, uh, throughout this series. In fact, last week, I'm just so excited to give you a report that over the course of our four services last week, we had a chance to see 35 people uh, respond in faith and obedience and get baptized to G here. So that was awesome. And... Um, so cool to see so many people respond in obedience to Christ and get baptized and just so thankful for what God is doing in the lives of so many of you. I want to celebrate with you if you got baptized. And I also just want to mention, if you're a person who was here last week and maybe you've been kicking yourself all week because you're like, man, I, want, I wanted to get baptized. I felt like that was the right step for me, uh, but I just, I couldn't do it. And, uh, and I've been kicking myself all week. The good news is it's never too late uh, to take that step of obedience. And so we would love to help you do that. And I'd encourage you, if you're ready to get baptized, uh, if you would let us know on that card, that Connect card, drop that in the basket. We'd love to get you set up with that. And I also want you to know, you might not know this, we actually do a lot of baptisms in our life groups. And so if you're not connected to a life group, talk to your life group leader uh, and get connected to a life group. Talk to your life group leader and we'd love to baptize you in that setting uh, as well. But this series that we're closing out, you are here if you are just joining us. Like I said, you're catching us at the end. But what we've been doing in this series, kind of the whole heartbeat, is we said that our, our, our kind of big aim is that we want to orient all of us to the big story of the Bible. So that has been kind of our goal together, is we said we want to get a big picture understanding of what the whole Bible teaches. And the reason that we've been doing this is we said that quite honestly, for many, many people in our society today, we said the way we approach the Bible tends to be that we read it as if there was a lot of Bible stories. And in other words, uh, a lot of us look at the Bible and we would kind of understand it as a collection of a bunch of different little stories, right? And so there's a bunch of different stories in the Bible, each with different characters, each with their own theme, each with their own moral, each with their own plot line. And we kind of look at the Bible like that. And here's what we said. So that while it's true that the Bible contains many stories within it, that the Bible actually is telling just really one story, that a better way to understand the Bible as the Bible is telling one comprehensive unified story from Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, all the way to Revelation. That the Bible has one story arc, that there's one meta-narrative, and it's actually pointing to one hero. And we said, quite honestly, uh, many of us maybe are not familiar with that story. We don't understand the Bible that way. And so in this series, we've, we've been trying to help us kind of get 
that big picture overview, that kind of orienting ourselves to the big story of the Bible. One of the things we've been doing week after week is we've been looking together at, uh, at this kind of roadmap. And we said, you know, if you want to think about the Bible in one picture, kind of in one snapshot, this is actually a pretty helpful way to do it. We said that really you can kind of summarize the Bible story in these 10 mile markers. And so the 10 mile markers we said are, is this. This is the story of what the Bible teaches. It's the story that uh, God creates and we rebel and God promises and we wander and God builds and we destroy and so the Father sends, and the Son rescues, and the Spirit indwells, and God reigns. And we said, there it is. There's kind of a snapshot of what the whole story of the Bible is. And so each week, uh, we've actually been going through uh, every single one of these points and kind of talking about and filling in some of the details on that. Now, I'll just say, uh, we've covered pretty much everything on the screen. And so if you've missed the previous weeks and you want to catch up, you can grab that on our website, our app, our podcast. All of those talks are available for you. Uh, but today, uh, we are going to be completing this series. So we're going to be talking about the last piece. And so the last piece is this idea that God reigns. And so here's what we're going to be talking about today. Today, uh, we are going to get a picture of what God has in store for us in the future. Uh, what does the future look like for those who put their hope and their faith in God, their hope and faith in Jesus? What does that look like? That's what we're going to get a chance to talk about today. And so I'm actually pretty excited because today we get to spend some of our time thinking about and talking about heaven. So we get a chance to talk about. And by heaven, uh, what I mean is I mean the, the final and full state of existence that God has in store for those who are redeemed by Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. And so I'm really excited for us to get a chance to look at this together. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it with me. And as we dig into this topic, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 21. Okay, so grab your Bible if you would. If you join me, Revelation 21 is where we're going to go. If you didn't bring a Bible, page 872 in the Bibles under your chairs is where you're going to find Revelation 21. And if you don't own a Bible, you can have one. We'd love for you to take one home with you and uh, make that a gift. So Revelation 21. And as you're getting ready to get to Revelation 21, kind of finding your way there, I just want to tell you that every time I teach um, out of the book of Revelation, just got to be honest with you, I'm always a little bit nervous. And uh, the reason is not, not because Revelation isn't awesome. It is a phenomenal, uh, amazing book of the Bible. But the truth is, and if you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation or if you've ever spent any amount of time in the book of Revelation, you probably know this. Revelation is most probably the most confusing and the, mo and the most seemingly cryptic book in all of the Bible. And if you've ever, like, tried to read it, you know this. So you open up the book of Revelation and you're going to see that there's things like beasts and dragons and antichrists and it's going to talk about all kinds of weird stuff it's going to talk about trumpets and bowls and judgments and it's just it's it's bizarre quite honestly when you when you read it in fact i thought it's kind of funny uh during our equipping division classes which our equipping division here is a series of uh, ministry training classes that we offer and during those training classes I, one of the classes i taught on was on the book of revelation and afterwards, one of the guys that was in the class sent me this graph, to, this chart of how to understand Revelation. I thought this was pretty funny. I thought I'd share it with you. But this is uh, Revelation Explained. And I don't know if you can see this, but the blue, the blue is preachability. So you can see by chapter, uh, you know, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, pretty preachable. And then after that, you really can't do much with it. And then up here, once you get to 21, 22, 23, you're back in the preaching zone, which is good because I'm preaching out of 21 today. So that's why I'm in, the, I'm in the safe zone. And then I thought this was funny. Reader confusion is the green. So it starts off like, yeah, okay, this is pretty good. By the time you get to chapter four, you're just like, I don't know what the heck's going on anymore. 
And uh, this is my favorite part. The yellow is trumpets and the red is dragons. Just like randomly. And I just, when I saw that, I thought, if you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation, you know that that summarizes very well how it feels uh, when you kind of navigate through the book. But what I'll tell you here today as we, as we look at this, now I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds. Uh, if you want to go deeper on this topic, you can jump into the equipping division and we can do that. But just for the sake of our conversation, I want you to know that, that probably the biggest reason why Revelation is so confusing to us and is so misunderstood the biggest reason, I, I think, is because, quite honestly, it's written in a type of literature. It is written as a type of literary genre that we just, quite honestly, do not understand. It is written in a literary genre that we are not familiar with at all. Uh, so maybe you can think about it this way. So some of you might know this, that the Bible, the Bible is actually comprised of 66 different books or 66 different manuscripts. And what you might also know is that it also is comprised of a bunch of different literary genres. So the Bible employs a lot of different types of literature. So, for example, one of the types of literary genres the Bible uses is poetry. It's poetry. So if you read, for example, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, you're going to see it's poetic. A lot of it's very, very poetic. Now, here's the thing. Even though it's Hebrew poetry and we are in America, and there's differences between American poetry and Hebrew poetry, we all kind of understand poetry, right? Like, we get it. We, we understand what to do with it. When we read something that's poetry, we know it's not always literal. We know that it uses, like, metaphor and meter and all kinds of other devices, and so we sort of understand what to do when we read poetry. Well, here's the thing. There is no cultural equivalent to the type of literary genre that Revelation is written in. And what, what is the literary genre of Revelation, you might be asking? Well, it's actually something that scholars call apocalyptic, apocalyptic. So Revelation is a type of genre of literature. It's called apocalyptic. And the reason it's called apocalyptic is actually because of the Greek word where we get revelation from. So the Greek word for revelation is this word right here. It's apocalypsis, apocalypsis. And apocalypsis is where we get apocalypse from. Now, here's, here's the crazy thing. When we think of apocalypse, for a lot of us, when I say apocalypse, what comes to your mind is usually gloom and doom. What comes to your mind is probably like zombie apocalypse, right? You might think of like a dystopian future or something like that, some kind of Hollywood movie where they use the word apocalypse, right? That's what you might be thinking of. But the word apocalypse in the Greek language, apocalypsis, literally just means the unveiling or the revealing of something. So think about it this way. The revelation, revelation is the revealing of something. That's, that's what it is. That's what's going on here. And, and one of the key features about this type of literature is that it was, it was very, very popular back in Jesus' time. So we don't have any cultural equivalent to it today, but back in the first century, it was very popular. In fact, from about 400 BC to about the first century AD, there's tons of examples that we have of apocalyptic literature. It was a very common and a very popular way of writing. So the first readers, when they read Revelation, they wouldn't have been as confused as we would be. They would have understood what the author was trying to do because it was something that they would have been familiar with. And apocalyptic literature, one of the things that we're going to learn about it, it's highly symbolic. It uses imagery to communicate not just things about the end of the world, but also things about history and about politics. And so, and so it's high in symbolism, it's high in imagery, it uses all those things. Now, I thought this was actually pretty helpful. 
I was reading one commentator, and he said, even though there's no cultural equivalent to apocalyptic literature in our time today, he said, probably the best example, and it's not perfect, but I thought it was very helpful, is if you think of like a political cartoon. So I want you just to, for a minute, think of political cartoons. We're all familiar with political cartoons. I actually just went to Google, typed in political cartoons, pulled up the most generic one I could find, and this is, you know, here's, here's, an, here's a picture of a political cartoon. And um, what do you see here, right? Well, you see uh, an elephant, and he's uh, pulling a rope, apparently playing tug-of-war with a donkey, and behind them is uh, the Capitol building. You kind of have this picture here. Now, here's the thing, all right? Uh, because we are all immersed in American culture in this room right here, I don't need to explain this to you, do I? I mean, you, you get it. You get it. You get what it means. You, you understand what the artist is conveying. You know exactly what the elephant is talking about. You know what the donkey means. You know what this building represents. You know what the game of tug of war in our culture means. Because you are immersed in American culture, that's true. Now think about this. If 2,000 years from now, if you were to go to another culture on the other side of the world that knew nothing about us and they saw this cartoon, would that make any sense to them at all? Uh, no, it would be very confusing to them. It would not, it would not be immediately self-explanatory. They would need to know something about American culture. They would need to know something about American politics to be able to interpret and understand what's going on here. So think about political cartoons for a minute. The things I love about these is that even though they're cartoons, they're actually very sophisticated, aren't they? They're very sophisticated because they, they require a knowledge, not just of American history, but also American political imagery and also American culture. Like, we all know what tug-of-war is. We all know that this building back here represents a, a whole ideology and a whole governmental structure. So it's actually very sophisticated. And here's the thing. Even though these are images and they're symbols, they represent real things, right? They're not, they're not talking about something fake. They're talking about something real, something that's real people, real ideologies, real movements, real structures that are in place. Now, if you can get your mind around that, if you can get your mind around that, that's actually a lot what the book of Revelation is like. Not entirely, but a lot like that. And in the same way that political cartoons require that you are immersed in American culture, Revelation, the author of Revelation, John, he's assuming that you are immersed, and his readers would have been immersed, in the Bible, in the Bible. In fact, more specifically in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Old Testament. I don't know if you knew this or not, but did you know that just in the last two chapters of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, it quotes and it alludes and it references the Old Testament 30 times, 30 times. And so all that to say this, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, don't read the tabloids, read the Old Testament, because that's where he's pulling imagery from to help us kind of understand uh, what's going on in the thing. Now, I say all of that just to keep that in your mind, because as we read the picture that we're going to have of what the future looks like for those who put their hope in Jesus, it's essential that you get that so that we understand what he's saying. So having said all that, what I want to show you now in Revelation 21 is I think that John is going to invite us as he thinks about heaven, I think he, he invites us to see two things. There's two things he wants us to see, and here they are. Number one, he wants us to see, he's inviting us to see that which is new. So in this future, the heaven, the final future that God has in store for those who put their hope in him, he wants us to see what is new and he wants us to see what is no more. What is new and what is no more. 
So we'll just talk briefly about those two things. So let's talk first and foremost about that which is new, that which is new. Revelation 21 verse 1 starts this way. John, the writer, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So we'll just go ahead and pause there for a second. So here's John. He's getting this vision. He's getting a picture of the future that God has in store, of what heaven is going to be like. And he begins by saying this. He says, I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. He says, I saw that which was was new. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. If you look at this, you'll notice that when he says this, he puts it in quotation marks. You notice that? It's a new heaven and new earth. So the obvious question is, what's he quoting from? So he's quoting from somewhere. What is he quoting from? So it probably doesn't surprise you because we just talked for, you know, about 10 minutes about this. What he's quoting from is he's quoting from uh, the Bible. And, and not just from one place, but from, like, all over the place. And, and so, for example, this idea that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be in, in this ultimate reality that God has for us, it's found in Isaiah 65, it's found in Isaiah 66, it's found in Zechariah chapter 2, it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 3, and that's just a handful. There's more that I could give you, but basically he's saying this is what the whole Bible is teaching, is that, is that one day there's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth. That's where this is going. And, and when it says, when the Bible says new heaven and new earth, that's actually intended to be an echo. It's intended to be an echo of what the first page of the Bible says. Now, some of you might know this. In Genesis chapter 1, if you were with us in the series, you'd remember this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, first sentence of the Bible, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you get to the last page of the Bible, and what does it say? It's going to say... God is going to create a new heavens and he is going to create a new earth. And basically what it's telling us is that the end of the Bible story is actually a new beginning. It's a whole new beginning where there's a new heaven and there's gonna be a new, a new earth. Now, I think it's important that I stop here for a second and I clarify what that means when the Bible says there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth because quite honestly, this is where a lot of misconceptions about heaven come from is this idea of a new heaven and a new earth. So I'll explain it this way. There's actually two words in the, uh, in the Greek language that describe something that's new. And so the first one is what we commonly think of, and that's this word right here. It's the word naos. It's the word naos. And with that word, we, it's actually where we get the word uh, neo from, where we get neo from. And what naos means is it literally means new in time. That's what it means. So it's, it's something, when we say something is brand new, or we say, I, got a, I went out and I got a new car. Uh, that's what we mean, right? We mean new in time, new in time. It was just made. It was just manufactured. Uh, in fact, in the Bible, when it talks about the word naos, it usually talks about kids. And if you think about it, kids are, in a lot of ways, they're, they're newer than we are, right? They're newer human beings to the planet. That's the idea of, of naos, all right? But there's another word the Bible uses for new, and that's this word right here, and it's the word kainos, the word kainos. And here's what's different. Kainos doesn't mean new in time. It means new in quality. That's what it means, new in quality. It's this idea of being renewed or being restored, right? That's kind of the whole idea, new in quality. And here's what I think is so clarifying. When the Bible says that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, it doesn't use the word naos. It uses the word kainos. It uses the word kainos. In other words, what it's telling us, and I think this is very clarifying, because what it's telling us is, is that the new heaven and the new earth, 
that what God has in store for us is not going to be entirely unlike what we're experiencing right now in the current heaven and in the current earth, that it's not going to be totally different and totally foreign. In other words, heaven is not some colorless, ethereal realm, right? It's not completely unlike what we're experiencing here in the current heaven and the current earth. It's just going to be glorified and remade and redone and be better and better in so many different ways. So that, that might sound kind of weird to you. So let me see if I can put it this way. Here's an illustration for you. Let's say you had a friend and your friend said, hey, I'm at the junkyard and I just found, I'm telling you, I just found, you know, just the most amazing treasure here. It is a hidden gem. And they told you, I found a 1968 Ford Mustang. And, uh, and they sent you this picture and they were like, it's beautiful, it's amazing. And, you know, it's, it needs some work, but it's unreal. And so I want to spend some time, I want to spend some money, and I, I just, I want to restore this thing. And you're like, wow, that is quite the find. So you're excited for your friend. Let's say he called you couple months down the line, a few months down the line, and said, hey, I got the car restored. I want you to come and see it. Can you come and see it? Well, here's the thing. If you were going to go see your friend's car, you wouldn't expect to see something totally different. Something, you wouldn't expect to see a helicopter, right? It's not what you expect. What would you expect to see? You'd expect to see a restored version of this, right? You'd expect to see a flashy, you'd expect to see something like this. That's what you'd expect a flashy, restored, beautiful, renewed version of what it was originally meant to be. That's what you would kind of intend to see. You would see, you'd expect to see something that was restored back to the way that it actually should have been in the beginning. And if your friend did a really good job, what would you say? You would say, man, that looks good as, tell me, new, wow, that looks better than new. And then you'd say, can I have it? And uh, your friend would be like, Probably not, so, but that's a, but yeah, that's the whole idea. And here's what the Bible's saying. When it gives us a picture of what God has in store, he says God's gonna take the heavens and the earth and he's gonna restore them. He's gonna remake them. He's gonna take what we know about them and he's gonna refurbish them to the way that they're supposed to be. I'll tell you what's interesting. Did you ever notice this? Did you ever notice in the Bible that whenever it talks about God's work, God's work in creation, God's work in those who follow him, God's work in salvation, that it almost always uses the prefix re. Do you ever think about this? So the term re is an interesting one, the prefix one, uh, re, because it always means to go back or it means again. That's what re, re means. And so what does the Bible say about the work of God? The Bible says that Jesus came to redeem us. Redeem us. What, is re, what does it mean to be redeemed? Here's what redeem means. It means to buy back. It, means to buy, it doesn't mean to buy. It means to buy back. Means to buy something back. And that's what God is doing. You know what the Bible says about the work of God? The Bible says that God is a God of resurrection. He's in the business, business of resurrection. What is resurrection? Resurrection is not bringing something to life. Resurrection is bringing something back to life. It was alive. It's dead. It's alive again. And that's what God does. He resurrects things. The Bible is going to say that God is in the business of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? It doesn't mean to bring something together. It means something was together and it was broken apart and now it's being reconciled. It's being brought back into a right relationship in the way it was intended to be in the first place. The Bible's gonna say that God is a God of renewal, that he renews all things. What does it mean to renew? Does it mean to make something new? No, it means to make it new again, to, to, to refresh it and bring it back again. All of this is communicating the same idea that God, God is the ultimate salvage artist. 
God loves to take broken things, dilapidated things, decayed things, and he loves to bring them back to the way that they were intended to be. That's true for heaven and earth. That's true for you and me. He wants to do that in our lives as well. That's what God has in store. Now, I'll just tell you, this picture of a new heaven, new earth, I think is so helpful because it helps correct some of the long-held misconceptions that many of us have about heaven, right? So heaven, we see, is not a, it's not a, listen, it's not a place of passive rest. It's not a place of endless, blissful contemplation of God. This whole notion that we're going to be playing harps on clouds, like I have no idea where that came from. I don't know where we get some of the images of heaven that we have. In fact, I just even, I went to Google Images this, this past week. I just typed in heaven. And I'm sure you can probably guess the kind of images that came up. You would probably think of the same thing. Here was the top image that came up when I typed in heaven. It was something like this. And I'm guessing for some of us, maybe that's the image we have in our mind. And there's always a stairway, right? Thanks to Led Zeppelin, that's always there. <laughs> and there's, you know, it's always, you always notice, it's always up. Do you notice that? It's always up there. It's never down here. It's always up there. It's always colorless, very white, lots of light. There's never anything tangible or physical. It's always ethereal and nebulous. You notice this about the way that we see heaven. I, I think quite honestly for some of us, because we have this image that's imprinted in our mind of what heaven looks like, for some of us, I think we might secretly fear that heaven's gonna be boring. And I, I can tell you just from some of the questions and comments that I've heard as a pastor that I think a lot of people think that. That man, maybe heaven's not gonna be all that great. You know, I think for some of us, maybe we think that heaven is just going to be like one long, continual church service for eternity. And some of you are like, oh, dear Lord, please, no, right? What are they doing in hell? And I just, I'll just tell you this much. I'm a pastor. I don't want that. I don't want a, an eternity of church service. That sounds awful to me, right? And that's just, we get this idea. I remember, uh, so, so many of us think, man, we're going to be, if we're in heaven, we might be missing out. I, I did college ministry for seven years, and you can probably guess, when I ever talked about heaven, the most, the, the most popular question I got from college students about heaven, you probably guess it was this one, is there going to be sex in heaven, sex in heaven? And some of you are like, college students, they would ask that. And you're like, just, just out of curiosity, um, <laughs> how would you answer that question? I don't just, just, I have a friend, I don't know, I'm just saying that. And, uh, but they would ask, like, what, you know, what about that? And um, out pet, pet lovers would ask me, you know, I, lo I, I like the idea of being with God, but what about my dog? You know, what about Fido? Like, is, is Disney right? Do all dogs go to heaven? And um, that kind of thing. Ho people with hobbies would ask the question a lot. Like, I love my, am I going to be able to do my hobby? When I, like, I love to ski or I love to, you know, bike or whatever it is. I love to, you know, is that, is, I love to play golf. Is that going to be there? Are we going to be able to do those things in heaven? And, and listen, here's, here's what I want you to hear me say. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure what God has in store for us in the new heavens and the new earth. But what I want you to understand is that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be everything that we love about the current version of heaven and earth. It's just going to be glorified and it's going to be sinless. And so I'm thinking it's going to be there. And if it's not there, you're not going to want it there. So if you're like, is my, is my dog going to be there? I, you know what, I, you know what my, my, my thought is? I, I think so. I can't imagine that not being the case. Now, all the things we love about this place. Is my hobby going to be there? I'm thinking, yeah, probably. Probably it's going to be there. I'm guessing. If we're talking about a, new, a renewed version, it's going to be better in there. Some of you are like, is, you know, is, is, is it? You know, I'm like, I don't know. Some of you are like, is my, is my cat going to be there? And all God's people said, no. 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 <laughs> there is a place for cats. 
God made that. He's declared that to be the case. But look, I'm just, I'm just saying, a new heaven, a new earth, man, it's everything we love about the current heaven and the current earth. It's just without the curse of sin. It's going to be glorified. So listen, in the new heaven and the new earth, creation's beauties are going to be uh, heightened. Its pleasures are going to be strengthened. And our limitations are going to be removed. So just take a minute. And I'll just tell you, when I start to think about heaven in, in that way, it starts to excite my imagination. I don't know about you. I just, just imagine with me. Imagine the Bahamas. I mean, if what we're experiencing right now is the cursed version of the Bahamas, what is the glorified one going to look like? That's going to be awesome. Listen, I, I love, I love to eat food. Love it. Love it. What is it going to be like to experience glorified food with glorified taste buds? You imagine that. Imagine glorified Chipotle. Like, it's a, how's it going to get any better than it already is? It's just gonna. I don't know. Imagine, I, I love music. I love it. Imagine listening to glorified music with glorified eardrums. Imagine that. Imagine having a glorified voice. All of us will be able to sing like Pastor Seth when we get into <laughs> the new heavens and the new earth. And not only, listen, not only heaven and earth, but the Bible says that, our, that we, those who put our hope in Jesus, will be glorified as well. The Bible says that there is a physical, bodily resurrection in store for those who put their hope in Christ. This whole idea that in heaven we're going to be spiritless, you know, kind of bodily beings, spirits just floating around, that's not, that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says we're going to be there in our bodies, except we're going to have glorified bodies. Man, I'm just saying, you think you look good now. Imagine what you're going to look like in heaven. Turn to the person next to you and say, you think I look good now? Imagine me in heaven. Just tell them that. Remind them of that. It's important that we know that. And I just saying, the Bible's going to say there's incredible things in store. You know what else the Bible says about the new heavens and the new earth? The Bible says in the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, it says, and his servants will serve him forever. And what that means is this. It means there's going to be work in heaven, that we're going to work there. And, you know, work... Work was never a result of sin. Work came before sin. God gave Adam and Eve work in the garden to do, but except it was a type of work that had no toil, that had no worry, that had no struggle. And so we will have meaningful service that we will do for God. God has gifted you and designed you with certain gifts and abilities and talents, and he has wired you in such a way that you're going to be able to do those things for your king in eternity. It's amazing to think about. I'm just telling you, we could spend all day on this point, talking about how amazing it is when all things are new, when there's a new heaven and there's a new earth and there's new bodies and everything is restored to the way that God wants it to be. But I also want you to see, I think what John is inviting us to see is not just that which is new, but also that which is no more, that which is no more. Part of, part of the picture that we get of heaven is not just what's going to be there, but what's not going to be there, what's not going to be there, what's no more. And I want to show you, because I just think this is so powerful, what John says. Here's what he says. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And so the first thing we see is there's no more sea. There's no more sea. Now, like I know for some of us, that's kind of confusing, because we're like, well, hold on a minute. Does that mean there's like, is the Bible saying there's no ocean? Is that what it's talking about? Like there's just not a, and for some of us, that honestly might seem like kind of a bummer, because some of us like, we like it. We like the beach. We like activities, you know, snorkeling and those kind of things. So like, is that, is that not going to be there? 
And so let me just help you out here. Let me just kind of remind us for a minute, what is the literary genre of Revelation? Anyone remember what it is? Remember what it is? Okay, I got apocalyptic is what it is. So think political cartoon. All right, so let's just say that I got up here and I said to a bunch of Americans and I was talking about political cartoons and I said, one day there's going to be no more elephants and there's going to be no more donkeys. You wouldn't be like, what's this guy got against elephants? You know, you wouldn't say, you'd be like, no, I get it. I get what you're saying. It's symbolic. You're saying there's not, there's not going to be any more uh, political conflict or there's not going to be any more divisive, you know, bipartisan drama anymore. That's what you're saying. And you have to understand that when John says there's no more sea, that would have made immediate sense to his hearers. They would have known exactly what he was talking about. And what does he mean when he says that there's no, no sea? Well, um, think about this for a minute. In Revelation alone, just in the book of Revelation, you see that the devil, the Antichrist, and the anti-Christian empire are all depicted as sea monsters. And, and the Bible's like in Revelation, the beast came out of the sea. What does that all that mean? Well, the, the sea was to, to a person, to an ancient person in the first century was very symbolic. You know, if you go through the Old Testament and you tally up the amount of times it talks about the sea, you will see that it's never positive, almost never positive. Scary things are in the sea. Now, the sea is where storms come from. To the ancient person, the sea was a place of danger. It was a place of death. It was a place of chaos, and it was a place of mystery. That's what it was. So, so here's what, to, to the ancient person, a, the sea, in a lot of ways, it was, it was basically the thing that was most threatening to human safety. And so it was, it was representative of everything that would cause worry or anxiety or mystery or unknown and something you had to be protected from. And it was something that was, that was, uh, that, that, that was counter human flourishing, that's what it would be. So if you were to take that same idea and you were to put it in our culture, it'd be like me saying, and then there was no more nuclear weapons. If I, if I said that, you would understand that. What it means is that there's nothing threatening our safety anymore. There's no, there's no need for worry or anxiety. There's nothing that you need to protect your children or yourself from anymore, is what he's saying. That's what it would have communicated to them. And I'll tell you what's more. What's interesting is if you go through Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, and you'll notice... I, when I was studying it, I noticed this. There is, there is repetition. And over and over again, you'll see in Revelation 21 and 22, that John is going to talk about that which is new and that which is no more. And he's going to say, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth. He's going to say there's a new Jerusalem. It's also a symbol. It's also an, it's an, Old, Test, it's an Old Testament symbol. Jerusalem was the city of God where the people of God would come together to gather on the presence of God. He's going to say there's a new Jerusalem. And then the Bible's going to say heaven is described as what's no more. There's not going to be any more sea. He's going to say in verse 4, for example, he's going to say uh, that God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more crying. There's going to be no more pain. No more sea. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. It's going to say there's no more temple. Later on in that chapter, no more temple. Again, it's an Old Testament idea. The temple was the place. You used to have to go to a place to interact with God. He's saying none of that anymore. That's gone. It's going to say no more night, no more night. So you see, you see all this imagery, what it's trying to communicate to us. Here's what it's trying to tell us. He says it straight out in chapter 22, verse 3. He says this, no longer will there be any curse. That's it. No curse. That's what he's saying. No more curse. 
Now, when he says, listen, when he says no more curse, what he's referring to, and if you've been with us in the series, you might remember this. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, when the first humans rebel against God, the Bible says from that point forward, we now live in a cursed existence. And uh, the rest of the Bible is going to explain to us the effects and the dysfunctions that come from that curse in Genesis chapter 3. But when you get to Revelation 22 and you get to the end of the story, it's going to say, listen, there is no more. There is no more curse. No more curse. Let me just say, I can tell by looking at your faces right now that you're probably having the same response that I did when I first read that. I thought to myself, oh, that's pretty cool. But it didn't, it didn't actually sink in at first. And so I want to I wanna hopefully help you think about this a little. Think about this with me. No more, no more curse. No more curse. I sat down in my office and I thought to myself, what does that mean? God, I, I want to understand what that means. No more curse. I want to I feel what that means, that there's no more curse. And I just started to write some stuff down. Started to make a list. What does it mean that there's no curse? I thought maybe I'd share my list with you. It's not exhaustive. But I thought maybe I'd share it with you so that you could imagine with me what that means, that there's no more curse. So here, here's what I want to ask you to do. I just want to ask you to look up here, turn your phone off, so many distractions. I get it, but I just want you, would you just, just, imagine, just imagine with me what it's going to be like to be in a place where there is no more curse, where there's no more curse. So here's, here's a list, just a few things I wrote down. No more curse means this. It means no more trial. It means no more trouble. It means no more burdens. It means no more DMV. <laughs> Praise Jesus, right? Listen, it means no more tax forms. It means no more debt. It means no more insurance. It means no more locks on doors. It means no more bars on windows. It means no more security cameras. It means no more tornado warnings, no more hurricanes, no more wildfires, no more tsunamis, no more earthquakes. Listen, it means no more pain. It means no more loneliness. It means no more depression. It means no more anxiety. It means no more worrying. It means no more insecurity. It means no more rejection. It means no more betrayal. It means, means no more gossip. It means no more broken hearts. Listen, it means no more broken homes. No more broken homes. No more. It means no more sickness. No more exhaustion. No more doctors. It means no more hospitals. No more cancer. No more chemo. No more MRIs. No more mental illness. No more disabilities. No more birth defects. No more wheelchairs. No more pacemakers, no more medical bills, no more nursing homes, no more funeral homes. It means no more struggle. God, no more temptation. It means no more internet filters, no more addictions, no more overdoses, no more shame, no more guilt, no more divorce, no more fatherless homes. It means no more orphaned children. It means no more bullying, no more suicide. No more racism and no more sexism and no more injustice and no more hate crimes. No more school shooters, no more church shootings. It means no more metal detectors, no more verbal abuse, no more physical abuse, no more drug abuse. God, no more child abuse. No more of that, man. No more. No more sex trafficking. It means no more rape, no more tears, no more tissue boxes, no more miscarriages, no more tiny caskets. 
It means no more infertility and no more infidelity. No more walls, no more wars, no more fighting, no more Satan, no more sin, no more death. It means no more curse. Are you guys excited about that? Or am I the only one? God, God, no more. Just no more of it. Everything in your heart, when you look at this world and you see the dysfunction, and when you look in your own heart, that makes you say, God, that shouldn't be that way. It's gone. It's gone. You guys, I can't imagine what it's going to be like to be without sin. Oh, dear Jesus, to think that these eyes, I'll be able to look out of these eyes and, and not have the jealousy and not have the suspicion and not have the frustration that so plagues my heart. What's that gonna be like? No more, no more. Sometimes people ask the question and they say, so Jesus is gonna wipe away all of our tears when we get there, right? So does that mean we're not gonna remember any of this? Is that what that means? And um, I'll just tell you, I don't, I don't know for sure, but can I tell you what I think and I'm, I'm firmly convinced of I think we will. I think we're going to remember all of it. All the pain, all the hurt, all the suffering. I think we're going to remember every ounce of it. But I, I believe that it's going to achieve for us an eternal weight of glory that's going to far outweigh it. And it's going to only bring more glory to God. There's a song um, I really love by a guy named Andrew Peterson. It's called Don't You Want to Thank Someone. Someone recommended it to me. And I listened to it, and he was reflecting on this idea of the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what he said. I thought this was good. He said, and when the world is new again, and the children of the king, so when the world is new again, new heavens and new earth, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing, a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up. And I'm waking up. I love that. Maybe, maybe it's actually a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to have been broken and then been redeemed by love. I like to think that there is greater glory that God has for himself because of our brokenness and because of our pain. I like to think that. Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you maybe have heard of her. Uh, she is a quadriplegic who broke her neck in a diving accident when she was a teenager. And so she's in her 70s now, and uh, that event, when she broke her neck, um, actually drew her to Jesus, drew her to faith. And she wrote a book called Why, O oh God. It's a great book. And in her book, she's reflecting on heaven, new heavens and new earth. And I love what she said. Here's what she said. <clears throat> I hope in some way I could take my wheelchair to heaven. And with my new glorified body, I'll stand up from that wheelchair on resurrected legs, and I'll be next to the Lord Jesus and I'll feel those nail prints in his hands and I will say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know I mean it because he'll recognize, he'll recognize me from how hard I leaned on him during my suffering. She says this, and then I'll say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I don't think I would have ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And then she says, now if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. <laughs> and when I read that, I thought, that's right, Johnny Erickson, to hell with your wheelchair. 
I like it. Amen. Maybe it's a better thing to have been broken and be redeemed by love. And I'll tell you the best part of heaven, the best part of heaven is actually not just what's new and not just what's no more. You know what the best part of heaven is? The best part of heaven's right here in verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. This is the best part of all is that it's God's presence is that we get to be with him. It's not just what's new and it's not just what's no more, but it's, it's him. And Jesus is king and God reigns and we get to reign with him forever and ever. There's no more barrier. We don't have to walk by faith here. We walk by sight. And we have a relationship with God that is like we've never had before. Unrestricted and unrestrained, just full access to the presence of God. That, that is what makes heaven, heaven. And so we see here that which is new, that which is no more. This is what God has in store for those who put their hope and their trust in him. And that's the band to come up. And as they do, I, I thought probably the most fitting way to end our talk and to end the series is to just give you a few conclusions and then we'll be done. So here's, here's conclusion number one. So what, what do we do with all these things? Well, first off, I think it's really important we know where this whole thing is going. We know where the story goes what the future is. And the reason I think it's important is because knowing our future gives us perspective for living today. Uh, That's true, isn't it? That's very true. Your present, in a lot of ways, our present is controlled by what we believe about the future. Isn't that true? And I think because, listen, we know this is where the story is going. We know this is what God has in store for those who put their hope in him. I think that maybe for some of us, quite honestly, it should cause us to radically reevaluate the way we're living our life. I just think it's true. I think, I think for some of us, man, if this is real, and those of us who follow Jesus believe with all of our heart, this is what God has in store for us. If that's true, I think, I think it should cause us to ask, how am I investing my time, my life, my energy, my resources? Am I giving myself to things that are ultimately going to matter in the long run? Because there's eternity that's in view. There's something bigger here, right? It would be, it would be I would be very unloving if I actually believed this was true and I told you that it doesn't matter how you live your life. That'd be a very unloving thing for me to do, right? That'd be like me saying, you know, just, just go ahead and polish the brass on the Titanic. It's like, no, man, there's some things that are not worth your time. There are some things that are not worth your investment. There are some things that are not worth your energy. Like, how, how unloving would it be if you came up to me and you said, Tony, I have a dream. It's been a lifelong dream of mine. I want to start a VCR repair company. I just can't wait. How unloving would I be like to be like, dude, just follow your heart. That's great. I'd be like, no, don't. It's a bad idea. It's not good. It's not a good investment, right? And I'm just telling you, for some of you, you need to reevaluate. Don't waste your life. You can, you, Jesus says that we can take our lives and we can invest those things for things that matter in eternity, in eternity. So that's first. Second, the second thing is this. Knowing our future enables us to face things we wouldn't otherwise be able to face. So isn't that true? When we know where it's going, it might not change our immediate circumstances, but it can change our perspective, on what we're facing in the midst of that. I'll tell you, I was reading a a really great book, by the way. I would highly recommend this book to you. If you have more questions about heaven, obviously we can't get to all of it in one sermon, but there's a great book out there I'd point you to. It's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's very good, very comprehensive, very biblical. 
And uh, in this book, he tells a story I thought was really, really interesting. He told a story about, in 1952, there's a, uh, a woman named Florence Chadwick. And she was the first woman who swam the English Channel both ways. So she was a really excellent swimmer, and she was looking for a challenge. And so she decided that she was going to swim from the Catalina Island to mainland California. And so she set out to do it, and it's a very long distance. And uh, the day she did it, it was very cold, and it was really foggy. And so she swam, and she swam, and she swam. She swam for 15 hours, 15 hours of swimming. And after 15 hours of cold and fog, she finally felt like her body was starting to give up, so she, she quit. And she had the, the boat that was with her pull her into the boat, only to find out she was just ha half a mile from the shore. And so the next day, they actually interviewed her, and they asked her about that. And here's what she said. This is a quote. She said this, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I would have made it. Now, I want you to think about those words for a minute. You know, for some of us, quite honestly, maybe we're in a spot right now where all we can see is the fog. That's all we see. Maybe for you, you just see the fog of the disease. You see the fog of the divorce. You see the fog of the addiction. You see the fog of whatever it is you're facing. I don't, some of you right now are in a very foggy place. But listen, my hope and my prayer is that even as we talk about what God has in store for us, that it begins to re-energize you and give you a fresh vision that we can see the shore. We can see the shore. We know where this is going, and it's going somewhere good. It's going somewhere good. And that might give you strength and energy to keep going. Now, it might not change your circumstance right now, but I believe it can give you hope. It can give you hope, and it can give you peace in the midst of it. And here's the last thing. God wants to invite you to make him your, your king today, today. Here, here's what heaven is. Heaven is where Jesus is king. And you don't have to wait for that to start. That can start now, can begin now. Jesus can be your king today. To surrender your life to him and to say, I want you to have control of, of my future and of my destiny. I want you to be the one who defines and directs my life. That's what heaven is. That's what heaven is. In its purest form, it's where Jesus is king and God reigns and we reign with him. That's what it is. I'm just telling you, the Bible says that that is a free option that God has for you. You don't have to earn your way to this. You can, you can surrender your life to Jesus, and he gives this freely to all of us, to all of us. Because I have to be very upfront with you, revelation does not mince words. There is another eternal state of reality. And that is an eternal state of reality where the Bible says is where Jesus is not king. And for those who choose and decide to stake their claim and say, I am squarely against Jesus running my life, Jesus will look at you and say, your will be done. He'll never force himself on you. But the Bible's gonna say that that state of eternal existence is going to be one that can only use words like torture and torment because where God is not, torture is found there. So I'm just telling you, there, 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 is, there is something significant here. Make your... Turn your life to Jesus, make him your king. And for some of you, maybe you need to do that here, maybe even for the first time. Surrender your life to Christ. I'll, I'll close with this. These are the last words of the book of Revelation and the last words of the whole Bible. It says this, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. And I think we just want to join with that prayer, and I want to end by just saying that same thing. End this series and end this message by just saying the same thing. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.